Welcome to the Optimist Futures Podcast, a place to learn from an industry insider with over 20 years of experience in commodity futures and options. Gain insight to the newest technology, platforms, risk management, trading philosophy, and advice about the current state of the futures and options markets. For futures trading platforms, deep discounts trading commissions, overnight margins, and instructional videos, feel free to visit our website at optimistfutures.com. Please remember that this matter should be viewed as a solicitation to trade. Trading futures and options involves substantial risk of loss and is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. Optimist Futures LLC is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, methodologies, newsletter, or similar service. We urge you to conduct your own due diligence. Now, here's your host, founder and CEO of Optimus Futures, Matt Zimberg. Hi guys, it's uh, Matt Z from Optimus Futures from the Optimus Studio. I have a very special guest today. It's Howard Lindzen. Before I tell you about him, I just wanted to tell you that he is not a futures trader. But what I like about Howard, that he's a phenomenal decision maker. And the reason that I say that is because I read his emails religiously. And I love reading his emails. And you should um, subscribe to them. You can go to howardlinzen.com and get it. Uh, we'll have the, all the websites in the video below. We'll put all the descriptions. I love the way he does business. I love the way that he turns business into friendships. He has friends all around the world. Wherever he goes, he can sleep, whether it's France, Italy, Israel, Canada. Uh, and it's a phenomenal way to not just be cold-hearted about business, but just be do business with things that turn into friends, uh, business that turn into friends as well. Many years ago, I bought his book, um, The Wall Street Edge. Phenomenal book. We're going to talk about it in a second. And I wanted to tell you that Howard also is the founder of StockTwits. I'm going to address it in my questions. But this is a guy who took a derivative of Twitter and made it better than Twitter. Knew exactly what customers to put on it. Knew exactly how to capitalize on it. And it's just mind-blowing to take a derivative of something and make it better. He's also um, the founder of Social Leverage, correct? Yes. Right? where they invest in companies and people, and he's going to talk about this as well. But so the reason that I brought him is because I think good traders are also good decision makers. So I wanted to pick his brains today um, about his decision making through the questions that I wrote down here. But first, we're going to talk about his book that I read over here. Um, This is the first time that you kind of drilled into my head the formula of ATR, average true range, right? Yeah. And you actually saw, I saw that you actually have a formula that is mathematic, mathematical formula, not just cold-hearted, decide, okay, on the gut feeling to get out. You want to talk a little bit about this book and how you went yeah. about it? The, the, that was back when actually, I think that's probably my best work because it was like, first of all, the predictions all came true. I think the funny story about that book is... CBS had just bought my company. I was kind of uh, a victim of uh, the real estate bubble 
you know, it was not so much greed. I just, um, everybody in Phoenix got killed at that time, even if you weren't in real estate business. Anyways, I, I started this web video show, CB, long story short, CBS bought it uh, back in 2007. Um, all the people started saying, write a book, write a book. And I said, fine, they paid me a lot of money. We spent it on furniture before I even wrote the book. Now I had to write the book even though I had spent the money. And uh, that's how things work, you know. And uh, I hated writing the book because I didn't know how to write a book. And I locked myself in a hotel writing the book. And then when it was finished, they, they said, yeah, I said, you know what we should call this book? The Twitter Tread. And you know, it was 2007, 2008. And they were like, what the fuck? We're not calling this book. We paid 80 grand. We're not calling this book. <laughs> we paid for Wall Strip. And, uh, you know, the book would have been a bestseller if you announced uh, if that book today was called The Twitter Trend in 2007. Instead, it was called The Wall Strip Edge, which was the name of the company CBS bought. We sold 11 copies in the Ukraine, maybe. Uh, and, uh, it proves the point that like the title, you know, even if you have something good underneath the covers, the title, the packaging matters. And, uh, yes. there was a good lesson in that. So I'm really proud of that book and no one's ever read it, but it is a good book. I read it. Yeah. It's a good book. Yeah. Oh, um, an average to range. So I had some, I was just right. out for lunch with them actually. There was guys that worked for me and really understood, uh, quant you know, at a, at a young age, they were teaching me how to take emotion out of, uh, you know, trend following and they're really smart guys. And I really believed in, in, in mathematically having a formula, uh, in managed futures and in, in individual stocks. And I felt like average shoe range was, uh, a really great thing to do look backs based on how each stock, uh, trades. I don't really use it anymore. I'm such a, a long-term trend follower and I just trade. I just don't trade with machines anymore. So, and I don't trade other people's money. So I just kind of trade more. Uh, I don't really trade. I'm more invest. Okay. My dog's about to go nuts. Hang on one sec. No. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Where's the help when you need it? <laughs> it's so good. Listen. Um, so, I apologize. No, no, no worries. So, okay. Now let's get to the let's get to the questions. And um, those are questions that I'm very, very curious about. I think they're really going to help our uh, customers as well, um, as far as decision making, as I mentioned before. So. You're in the venture capital business. You invest in good companies. You invest in good people. And I'm sure a lot of people knock on your door. So I assume you can have expertise in everything, right? But nevertheless, so far from the portfolio that I've seen, you invested in very successful companies. So how do you make decisions, you know, how to invest in things when you're missing certain variables? How do you, do you live with the fact that there's just certain things you don't know? Or you just capitalize on the things you know the most and make the decisions with that? Well, I think at the beginning, it's, you know, the, I'm, I'm, I'm not so much a venture capitalist. I mean, the, I'd like, I don't, I'm not against venture capital. I'm more of a seed, seed stage investor. And um, so I'm betting, 
before there really is a business and before there's a model. And so um, I'm in that, I'm in that phase where I'm very close with the founder and, you know, we're looking each other in the eye and we're trying to game to see if they um, really have the, uh, the wherewithal to, you know, get hit in the head for 10 years before good things happen. And so it's, it's more of an art. I'm more in the art side of it than the science side of it. But I mean, you know, as you get better at it, you know, I've been doing it for a long time and now we're, I would say we're professional um, and the checks get bigger. Uh, it becomes a little bit more of a science because you have to say no and you have to kind of, as a professional, you have to stick to more rules. Uh, it becomes less art. You can't, you know, people expect us to do what we tell them we're going to do. We're going to invest in financial service companies and enterprise companies. And, you know, we're going to be a little bit eclectic, but if we are eclectic, these are the rules that we follow, you know, they'll have to be people that like we've known for a while. So I think in anything, the decision-making comes down to rules. Uh, but I think why I love what I do is versus the mark stock market is I think to be successful in the stock market, you really have to be more disciplined than you do in the early stage market because the optionality of betting on people versus, you know, uh, corporations and, and groups um, is that the optionality works in your favor. If you invest in smart people and you invest in software, uh, there's no time decay, you know, time works in your favor. And so I like, I think that actually is just why I chose, you know, in the end, investing in startups over investing in futures in the market. I don't like leverage and I prefer the leverage that I can get uh, with time and betting on smart people using software. I love this philosophy because at the end of the day, it starts with people. Yeah. You know, now I know why you also have. Every time we've been wrong, uh, we pick the wrong people. Uh, you know, so many things can go wrong, but in the end, it's the people, right? A bad jockey can get, uh, can wreck a good horse and a good jockey can get the best out of a horse. Very simple sports stuff. And, and uh, but at the same time, um, you know, you, you, you need a good market always. And luckily we've had that. And then we have, you know, software and networks working in our favor as well. And once you see how those work, uh, the leverage is really fantastic. I see. I see. Uh, let, let's go back to what you were talking about when you make bad decisions. Let's talk about risk management. So let's say you go into an investment or a stock or anything, and now you're starting to hesitate. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, you know what? And you don't want to be emotional about your decision. So what factors do you use, for example, to dump a venture or dump a position without being emotional? What is really, how do you get to that decision if things don't go well? How do you determine if it's the market or it's the people or it's the product or it's just not the right time, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, it's always a little, in, in startups, we have rules, right? So it's part of our LP agreement and part of you know, what makes the best investors great in the venture businesses, they don't put good money after bad. So stocks are a lot different than early stage companies. You know, there are unicorns that become zero, of course, but at the same time, we as a firm, if we invest once in a company and the company cannot raise money from new investors, uh, we can't go and reinvest in that company. So that prevents 
just that's unless you you know you break the rules and then you could end up getting you know wrecking your brand and getting sued but like the rules of our business like if you structure them right you know keep you from putting good money after bad now the stock market's much different because you know you know using stops you know how tight should the stops be and is this the one time like in december of this year right like i was inches away from getting stopped out of many long-term trends google shopify etsy you know a couple more bad days and i really would have had to make a decision with stocks that i had owned for a very long time we're starting to break really long-term trends and as luck would have it i may probably broke the rule a few times and here we are you know four months later and all those stocks have, have you know gone up 50 to 100 percent so um you know i'd like to, I like to say rules are meant to be broken. I think what keeps me most honest is writing. You know, I journal and that's why I recommend stock twits or, you know, a blog or whatever it is or a, a yellow pad. Um, I always have one around me, meaning, you know, I'm writing notes. I'm just keeping myself honest. And I think journaling is probably the best way. And so by sharing my ideas, it keeps me more accountable than I would be with my own money. So having other people follow me into things makes me more accountable. Understood. Um, just to give you a little bit of feedback, you know, in, in our business, in the futures trading business, because customers use a lot of leverage, they probably couldn't afford to break rules. You know, yeah. that's just a little bit about ours. Okay. Um, so in your trading, in your personal trading, I know that from your email, you work with a lot of people who are fundamentals in their view and a lot of people who are more technical. What do you prefer as an outlook to the market? Do you prefer the fundamental outlook, a combination with the technical? How do you see things? Well, I think I, I'm generally in the stock market come down to price. I, I've learned in the early stage market that if, if you love everything about the, the, the people in the company, price doesn't matter as much. But I think in the stock market, or, you know, maybe in most markets other than early stage, I think price, so I think technicals, over fundamentals because inside the technicals if you know how to read the tea leaves there's a lot of fundamental data um, and I say that uh, you know in a software era where no one knows how to value things um, technicals haven't worked as well because because there we have companies defying all kinds of rules because analysts can't understand how open source works or how crypto works they don't really know how to value these companies it's no one's fault uh, but I think, how do you have technicals uh, that they stop working for a while right now because analysts have just been so wrong about how to value these companies. Um, so I think we're in this weird gray area where it pays to use both uh, common sense, some rules, but I, I generally am price driven, but um, fundamentals matter but you have to understand what the fundamentals are driving it. So it's like not as simple as just saying, I understand the fundamentals. I don't know, define what the fundamentals are of MongoDB or Elasticsearch or Etsy or Twilio, the companies that continue to defy, you know, valuation uh, understanding for years at a time. Not, we're not talking about three months or what standard parabolic things used to look like. We're talking about trends that just are like defying um, define what we've ever seen. I think you said it best in one of your emails that I read. You said the harder it is to evaluate, the better investment it is. 
right? So true, right? Like I, like I think about it, no one knows anything, right? We've entered an era where software, the machines, the only thing we can agree on is to argue over whether the machines are good or not. Uh, everything else, you know, no one knows how to value what the machines are doing for us. Um, and I prefer to embrace them and say, learn how to you know, be humans around the machines. The machines are here. Like it's, it's over. They're getting plugged in and they're scaling. And the people that know how to, how to work with them, as it, comes, as, with, as it relates to the market, I just think, you know, I think obviously this time is not different. But what is different is... Um, rules are getting broken. Like no one really understands how big these things can be because we have not seen anything like this. And the stock market is, whether it's, it's been around for hundreds of years or thousands of years, this, is, this time is just different. The technicals are uh, acting. You've got to have a combination of really understanding both. Understood. I want to go to, uh, you know, about, I want to talk about, uh, social trading, I want to talk about stock tweets. So, you know, for the longest time I looked at stock tweets and the model, and I don't know how to evaluate things the way you are. Um, however, I saw stock tweets develop over time to a better platform in terms of interface. It had a better interface. It had a better, I saw better engagement between people who are talking about the markets. I saw a model that you were able to capitalize and bring in advertisers into it. So the question that I have, how did you take a derivative of Twitter, understood it better than Twitter, and created, uh, I believe that today's stock tweets is the biggest social network of traders in the world, right? More than any yeah, other I like to say that. I mean, everybody likes to say there's the biggest or the best. I think we're the biggest in the sense that I just, you know, it's a network and as small as, you know, people say, oh, you know, if I leave, it'll be nothing. You know, we've always, you know, people threaten stock rates all the day. Well, I'm leaving. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> in 2008, we were like, we would follow that person and try and get them back on stock rates, right? We did those things that we had to do when you were like a thousand people on the network. Everybody felt they were the most valuable cog in the machine. I think today it's kind of funny in that, you know, there's like half a million people a day uh, chatting. We keep it, listen, there's, a, there's in real time, there's spam, no matter how much you police and no how much you try and explain the rules, people just misbehave and machines, you know, do what they're going to do and PR firms do what they're going to do. But I think we set some basic rules around what Twitter should be and not to judge Twitter, but I'll explain that briefly is that you know, if you're going to set up a housing community or you're going to set up school or you're going to set up country, you know, there's a constitution. There's a, there's a set of house rules, as Phil and I, when Phil was working with me, and, and when we wrote the Ten Commandments for Stock Twits, it was like, thou shalt not, you know, curse. But if you curse and are funny, uh, you know what? I mean, it's pretty hard to be mad at you. But uh, And if you're mean to other people and you're not funny uh then what's the value to the community and i think those are simple house rules i think you know they call them terms of service at facebook and twitter and they've just been if you open up the terms of service of twitter you got 700 pages uh you know and all of a sudden there's no rules once you have 700 pages of rules you have no rules 
if you can define your rules in four or five sentences, uh, I think you can build, uh, it may not be the biggest, but you can build a community that lasts. I think you constantly, it's like the Ten Commandments, right? We could argue, should there be eight or should there be 11? But listen, if you can't follow the Ten Commandments, you're not gonna, you know what I mean? You could be president, I guess, but you can't be beyond president. The, uh, the, but the point is, you know, the, the less the rules, the better. The other thing is Twitter was built for, by people for not the best reason financially, right? In the end, what Twitter was, was a real-time network. And there's nothing more valuable to real-time than finance. You know, if, if, if when Osama bin Laden, when we took down Osama bin Laden, you know, the person that heard the helicopters and tweeted, uh, you know, something's going on, uh, that broke on Twitter 20 minutes before it broke on uh, the news wires. So just that one moment, there was more, there was more value to be had by understanding how Twitter works than how any other network worked. And that was worth the most to the futures market and to Bloomberg and to Reuters and to, and so the fact that Twitter isn't making their money from that is the problem with Twitter. Twitter can be the greatest product in the world and I still think it is, but it will never be the greatest business because they don't, they don't, they don't uh, make money off the, the, what the real use case is. I see. And they've, they've constantly been in battle about that and about who is allowed to use the platform. Um, and so it would be very easy to solve Donald Trump problems, even if you wanted him on the platform, delay him by two minutes. You, you can tweet, but we're delaying your tweets by two minutes, so they're kind of irrelevant because uh, you're gonna have to go find another platform or behave. Uh, but like, we gotta look at your stuff before we share it. We're not gonna market, we're not gonna do anything, but you know what, we're holding it back for a minute because you're a lunatic and because you're not following the house rules. Just because you're president doesn't mean you can't follow the rules of Twitter. So what Twitter did is they added eight more paragraphs of why the president can tweet. Now, that may work because Twitter thinks it's gonna work, but it decays the brand. And when you, when you, when you let the rules just kind of break, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah kind of start happening. And it's not their fault. It's just, in, you know, when you have venture capitalist money and you have all these things, sometimes the derivatives become better, but they're smaller. Like, you know, we have other issues at StockTwits. We may have a better product, doesn't, but we're also much smaller. So, um, and we have to live with that. So the, the Twitter is an incredible product with an incredible uh, um, scope and power, um, but the derivatives are better. Like in the end, the derivatives of Twitter are better. Absolutely. Talking, talking about derivatives, you guys replaced the symbols of hashtags with the dollar sign. Yeah. So every, everything with the dollar sign, you know, which was an incredible idea for a financial product, you know, yeah, much better than a hashtag. It was something that we would sit around and I would like, back then before Twitter started, there was, uh, everybody was on a Blackberry. So Twitter, when there was no iPhone when Twitter started. So, so basically, you know, the first 5,000 people, 10,000, 100,000 people were Twittering from their Blackberries, right? So it was a different universe. So, and back in the Blackberry days, you know, Blackberry and the pin, you know, if we, if we, if we can go back that far, you know, back in the day, you know, Brokers were using Blackberries and they were using the PIN system to text messages because they would break, they would be outside the scope of the brokerage. And so people could share inside information on, 
on Blackberries because the pin was outside their email. So of course I knew all this because you know I was in the investment business. And so when Twitter came out, I was like, wait a minute, this is gonna be a way for people to just talk about stocks. And of course it's public, so it was much more a retail idea than it was you know, an institutional idea. But my problem was if I say that I'm buying, uh, I'm in the Apple store buying an Apple computer, and I tweet that with a hashtag, uh, and someone wanted to know what does someone think about Apple stock, uh, that would be mixed in with, hey, I went to the market to buy a green apple. And so, every, you know, the Apple hashtag would be like littered with, you know, uncontextual information. So for me, it was just a better way to use Twitter. I was like, I'm, you know, people speak, if you're in finance, you, everybody knows tickers. And so if, he, if uh, the dollar sign means money, so we just started doing, you know, dollar sign R-I-M-M, which was RIM, Research Emotion, which was BlackBerry. And I sent the first dollar sign message to Fred Wilson. And he sent me back a message saying, well, that's genius. And that's what makes Fred a genius. He recognized it in 08 when I sent my first dollar sign tweet. And that was the first that I know of. Uh, and then we would talk about stocks with the dollar sign and then we could search on Twitter and see who was talking about it as a stock. So that was the uh, origin of that. I, I, read, I, uh, I read Fred Wilson's blog, but, on, but only the stuff you mentioned on, on the emails, because I would say if it's important, Howard will mention it because I know you follow. I'm a filter for them. You, I, you are, you know, you should, uh, you know, you should thank you. Um, Let's talk a little bit about back to the markets a little bit. Let's talk about trends. How do you determine um, when the trend is on and how do you determine that the trend is actually coming to an end? It's at its highest, you know, it's in a range. How, how do you go about determining those things? Well, I think this is the thing that uh, no one really knows. I think this is very personal. Um, a lot of it is, is, is technical, but a lot of it is based on catalysts. You know, for me, you know, Nike is gonna be in a trend forever. So the question is, how do you decide, uh, you know, which, how meaty the trend that they're currently in will, will be? Because obviously law of large numbers. So, so we had trends like Nike uh, that, uh, that, you know, old school trends, you know, the stocks trend up because the market gets bigger, they continue to uh, come up with, you know, they have such a gigantic market around footwear um, and they have such a, such a great brand. But uh, now you add software to great trends and you add less people and more, you know, operating leverage and you add more uh, margins because less people. And so, so really, you know, what used to be cool trends, oil and uh, fashion and um, consumer brands, um, you know, basically now we have these technology trends, like I say, Twilio, Etsy, Shopify, where there seems to be infinite scale as long as they continue to feed the network. So it's become much harder, you know, because the trends seem to be steeper and they seem to be longer um, you know, riding a Nike trend is much different because it's still based on kind of historical valuations versus riding a trend around a platform or open source software where like, how do you measure it? What's good growth for something that's completely open source? So I don't think it's so easy. I, I think uh, a lot of it is very personal. 
Um, so I, I, I don't want to like tell people, but I'm trying for me, like if it's not a software company uh, or some kind of like unbelievable trend around fashion, I call it fashionology, uh, like Lulu and Nike, they really, it's not worth owning stocks in my opinion, because I, <clears throat> I don't want to own old world businesses when I can invest in private companies. So really I only want to own software both in the private market and the public markets. So I'm learning in this new world how much software I want to own in my public portfolio when I can own software in my private portfolio. So I really think we're in this new dimension uh, where there'll probably be all kinds of new alpha because people are going to give up on old world, owning old world economy stocks. Uh, because they don't have the potential returns of uh, new world economy stocks. So I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to answer that because I don't think I know. It's, it's personal. I, I respect it. It's, it's a decisions you make. You know, it's, it's, it's a personal decision. So having said that, so tell me when you decide to go into something, whether it's in the, in the private investing company or public investing in stock, how do you scale into a position? Let's say you have a portfolio, you decide to do 5% of that portfolio in that specific asset. Do you scale in as it goes up or you put a little bit in the beginning and you scale if it goes against you? How do you scale fully into a position with the allocated capital that you have? In, in like a market like today where it's just been trending and, and good, I, I take equal position sizes, you know, because they're all software companies, like for the most part. So if it's two to 5%, if you know, if I'm allocating to 20 stocks, it's going to be the same dollar amount uh, per stock because they're all, you know, high beta, high. Um, uh, so, I, you know, in a good market, I own 20 stocks, three to 5% uh, per stock. Um, and I'll, I'll trim if, you know, a position gets to be over 10% of my portfolio, I'm going to start trimming. Um, and, but in the private markets, you know, each investment, you know, we have a, this fund is, we'll, we'll write 700 to million dollar checks. We try and buy 10 to 15% of the company. So it's also, you know, if a great founder comes along and they've already raised a lot of money and they only need a little bit for us, we, you know, we'll break the rule, but generally we like to own 10 to 15% of the company and we make equal bets across 20 to 25 companies per fund. Okay. Um, I want to go back to stock tweets and I've, uh, I have this question for you. So I'll tell you, I, I've been a futures broker now for 20 years mm -hmm. and looking at the portfolios of people and the trading, I've learned what not to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't say that I've always learned what to do for, with very unique individuals that are amazing traders who do know how to use leverage. But for the most part, I learned what not to do, which helps me out a lot as well. When people, new people come on board, I tell them what are my experience has been but you have this you have stock twits and you can actually see how the masses behave mm -hmm. you know you have half a million participants it's such an insight to actually look at all this and say okay the i know is a fact that i can say I, I never say anything like i know is a fact except when i feel very very strongly about it but in the markets the masses are wrong mm -hmm. so when you look at stock twits people's behavior like you know what do you see i mean do they go all in and get all excited about one stock and then they all dump it together and, and they say this stock is complete shit or like what you went through in december like you said okay i've risk management 
I wanted to, but you said, but luckily you didn't, right? But I'm sure that a lot of people got panicked and they sold. Tell, tell me the world of trading through stock twits. I really want to know this. Yeah, there definitely is an edge. I wish I was a quant and, and knew how to take advantage. And, and by take advantage, not, you know, trade against the stream. Right. Because I don't even believe in that. But it's I just think, mess behavior. You want to go against the mess behavior. Mass. So, so I, I'm a believer that the, the, that the crowd is generally right because I'm investing in trends. The idea is not to be the first guy to a party or the last guy to leave the party. And so you, it's a feed and greed, feed and fear and greed, right? It's very much like uh, Larry David or Jerry Seinfeld. Like you don't need to be first. And I think that's the first thing. You don't have to discover oil to have made billions of dollars. And you don't have to still be drilling in 2019 to get rich, right? There's other things that are going on. So I, you don't want to be the last person to leave. And you don't need to be the first person in. Now, within that parameter, there are crowds, but there's different crowds. What, what's fascinating about stock twits, and obviously I thought, the same thing with Twitter, but they made some cardinal mistakes, I think, uh, because of their being public company and having to meet uh, revenue goals. Um, they've, they've kind of hurt themselves. But for StockTwits, what's fascinating is I have like, a, they call it at Facebook, a God view. But really, at the end of the day, StockTwits has data that I look at once in a while, not to trade with, but just to just be fascinated by because we see patterns, just like you would see patterns on prices, we see patterns in behavior, whether it's the amount of people that are bullish or the amount of people that are bearish. And I call it like a social VIX that I have the power or I have the luck to look at. Um, and it, you know, at, at, in December, I was writing about it. I was like, I had, even though the prices still hadn't really been, weren't in panic mode, the market was in such a panic and, you know, I was buying and it was scary. I mean, I don't like to buy counter trend, but I was buying Apple and Facebook and I was a little bit early, not much, not too early in hindsight, but, uh, and I was buying the NASDAQ and I didn't want to buy the NASDAQ because it's not like the markets really were in crashing, but the sentiment was so bad and so off the charts that I couldn't help myself. And I think, Forgetting that I didn't make enough money off that trend, I think just seeing that negative sentiment allowed me to stay with some of my positions a little longer than I probably should have. So I said, so there's a lot of luck involved, and that's why I don't like to use uh, just machines uh, because it is my own money now. I don't manage other people's money. So I, 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 you know, maybe I got lucky, but the sentiment was so bad on Twitter and StockTwits in December that, uh, and it was not so much the mass of it, it was... Sometimes they call it the moosh at the casinos. There's four or five people that I can read and I know to do the opposite. So I think there's, there's also more value in finding, you know, the mooshes on these platforms that just are always wrong. Like they're doing everything right. They're writing, they're sharing, but they can't help themselves. They're the ones that panic at the bottom and they're the ones that panic at the top. And they're actually better than the masses at, at figuring out the market. Interesting. I, I, I wanted to tell you, I've learned... In my own personal trading, in my own investing, I considered a lot what my group does over time. You know, yeah. I said what the good guys do, 
and what the masses do. And I've made good decisions based on that when you have access. Following the edge cases are better than following the crowd, meaning follow, doing the opposite of what the people that are always wrong is good and doing what the smart people do consistently yeah. is also good. So I don't really so much worry about the masses. I'm trying to find, this is like social networking. You're trying to, you're trying to draft behind the really smart people but keep an eye on the really dumb people as well because they're dangerous, but you can also make a lot of money off them. But to go fast, you have to go behind just the smart people. And listen, I don't mind sharing, just like other smart people don't mind sharing. Just don't slow us down. Like we're sharing because we wanna go faster, but don't get in our way and don't crash. You know what I mean? Like if you're gonna crash, stay off the side of the road. Like, you know what I mean? Clean yourself up. And I think that's kind of the way I look at it. Awesome. Um, okay, let's talk about communication. Let's talk about as far as, you know, where the tech is going as far as interaction. So we started with email to Twitter. Now everybody's just texting one another. Where do you see the next wave of communication between people? Um, where is it going? Today, I will tell you that our, the, what we've realized in marketing, that majority of people don't even open their emails because it's just too much to read. Even if I respond with, with one line, it's just too much mm -hmm. to read. Where do you see the communication? And obviously you, you have kids, so you know how they communicate. You know, God forbid they call one another, you know, because you have to be not normal. If God forbid you end up hearing another voice, right? Um, so where do you see this is going? Where is the next wave of communication? And, and <laughs> I mean, and is it good? I mean, is it good the way communication is today? us to judge i mean you can't it's not their fault that they have google maps and snapchat and uber it's just oh if they don't have google maps it's that's it you know it's like no oxygen on earth you know yeah. it's like they don't know where they are they're on mars it's just no navigation you know just, us too so it's not their fault that these tools exist um so i think it's i think we're hitting a new era where there's so much noise on every channel that you have to be an expert at every channel so I don't think you can be a one trick pony. I think you have to use text, you have to use email, you have to use billboards, you have to use radio, you have to use TV, you have to use podcasts, you have to use Zoom, you're using Zoom today. You have to use Skype, you have to use Google Hangouts. Uh, you have to be a magician of communication. So I think, I think it'd be dumb to be an expert in one. I think the, I think the, ta the, the, the best, most successful people are gonna try them all and be an expert at many. Um, I think you're going to have to be an expert in three. You may not have to speak Spanish, Hebrew, and English, but you're going to have to speak text, Slack, uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, TikTok. You're going to have to speak three to five languages, and those languages are not going to be. Luckily, you're not going to. Have, luckily, English is going to be. You know, these people that went to learn Chinese. Well, I don't know why you did that. You should have learned Slack. Um, so I think you should learn English well. You have, other people have. Although Israelis somehow, the longer they stay in the United States, the worse their accents get. I think that's kind of a thing you sign. That, that's, that's only because we find more Israelis to talk to. It's, yeah, maybe. I think there's some kind of thing you sign when you leave Israel. It's like never fake, fake your accent. The longer you stay in the U.S., make your accent worse. The, um, but I think English is the only language you need to learn. Uh, and, and you need to, English, writing in English and speaking in English is more important than ever. Uh, and I'm talking about the skill of writing. And, you know, Ivanov, who works with us, 
you know, he's Bulgarian, but he writes in perfectly in English. So I think, you know, the fact that Americans can't write in their own language is discouraging in English. And so we, you know, we're very focused on our kids being able to write and communicate because uh, that's the skill. So I think writing is under, under uh, but I, so I think anything that, uh, you can't just get away with just text, but I think text is my favorite because it's my narrowest network. Uh, my second favorite is uh, email. And then my third favorite is short form, you know, stock twits and Twitter because that's my community. Um, and then beyond that, I just don't have time to learn anything else. But it's you know, so three for me. It's those three. I, I think what I'm hearing is that as so the software that really prevails, that's the language you have to learn. It is what it is. Apple. Like you're using Zoom, it's not that hard. It's not fun to learn a new product, but you know, it's a what is it? A fifteen billion dollar company. I mean, we're a little late, but it is better than Skype. Um, just for everybody else who doesn't know, I send Howard a Skype invite and he says, you're out of your mind, I'm on Zoom, so we're on Zoom, thanks to him, and we're going to continue using Zoom, so thank you. Well, you're uh, ahead of the curve now, like, whether you like it or not, now you're ahead of 99% of people with a better product. There we go. In the future, you're doing your own version of living in the future, even though Zoom's a public company. All right. Incredible. This, I think your partner's in the back. I think no. two. <laughs> it's like you didn't invite us to the show we want to be here too <laughs> you're installing cactuses no i i see i see there's a nice cactuses there in arizona it's good okay uh let's talk about something else those people are legal aliens I'll, I'll take your word for it i'm not sending ins after you hey um let's talk about the future of money um where is it going you see people using Bitcoin, Venmo, PayPal. Where, where is the future of money going to be, in your yeah, opinion? I think the future of money is, like you said at the beginning, it was the fact that I can go to Israel and, of course, I can afford to stay in a hotel. Oh, my wife's now in the video. Um, I think the future of money is our social network because I think money is so... Um, it's created so much anxiety and will continue to do so not ha having it. Um, creates so much anxiety uh, that once you get it, people still don't know how to behave with it. But I think this next generation's done a good job. They just don't need much, right? They're a very lean generation. You know, they, they've they you know, fast food's bad for them, but they're still eating it. They, they have vape, they have their smartphones, but they don't need that much, right? Like, uh, you know, to, inter to interact with machines, you don't need suits and ties. So, so people need, you know, one season of clothing unless they live in a really cold area. So there's less, people need less. Um, so money is changing, you know, from an era of consumerism to an era of sharing and, you know, like the gig economy. It's not like a, it's not like a blip, this is a real thing. And so um, I just don't know. I think you have to own a basket of monies. You know, I own PayPal, MasterCard. I own Shopify. I own uh, some Bitcoin. Uh, I just recently added some Bitcoin um, again. Um, so I don't know. I don't trust any of them. Uh, but I use all of them. Uh, I'm a late 
user of Apple Pay, even you know, like I, like smart people keep saying that Google Pay and Apple Pay are going to be the big wins here. But if you look at a chart of Mastercard and Visa, they're living on the railroads. You know, the financial railroads in the United States are Visa and Mastercard. I mean, they couldn't be disrupted by Google and, and Apple. That's pretty impressive. So, if you look at the charts of Mastercard, you would say they're the winners. Um, and China kind of got around the rails. Tencent and Alibaba are the Mastercard and Visa and Facebook, Facebook and Shopify of their countries, all in one thing. You know, the China in China, it's like we've hit an era where they don't even need to cheat. Like we've thought of doing business. You know, everybody in China is supposed to be a criminal, but Tencent and Alibaba are so big and so uh, profitable that they don't even need to cheat. Uh, so. So we've hit this era where I don't know, but it's not gold. Okay, that's dumb. And, um, you know, gold's not going away, but it's dumb because it's not portable. Um, so that's, at Bitcoin in its worst case scenario is, is gold. Because kids don't care about jewelry. Um, you know, culturally maybe India and other places. So I think Bitcoin's a real thing. Um, but it can still go to zero being a real thing. Yes. Uh, um, and, and US dollars are a thing, but uh, I don't know beyond that. It was very weird to me that one day that Facebook decided to have their own currency. I was thinking is every social group and every organization out there is going to have their own currency? Is Amazon going to have their own currency? Is Facebook going to have their own? It seems like every social group out there wants its own currency. Even Menmo and PayPal and, and all those, it's like, it's like groups that interact between themselves on that. You know, consumers that use PayPal, friends who use between one another Venmo. I wonder how it will grow. I don't know. Uh, I think, if, if, I think <clears throat> on crypto, I think if, if they can figure out, it's, they can solve the speed thing and offload all the small transactions and Lightning Network and a few other groups are working on this stuff, then I think crypto has like a really... You know, we've underestimated how big crypto will be. But uh, dollars, you know, if you're stuck in the middle of a jam and you somehow have dollars on you, that's, that's always safe. But it's, you know, unless I'm in New York, I have no cash in my pocket. So New York's the only place where I carry cash. Uh, I probably should carry cash all the time because it can get you out of a jam. But kids today don't know what cash is. If they lose their debit card and you can't Venmo them money, they're fucked. <laughs> yeah, that's like crazy. That would have caused us so much anxiety 30 years ago, but they're not anxious over that. They know that they're one phone call away or one text away from having access to capital. That creates a lot less anxiety. So they have their own anxieties, but they're not going to have the same anxieties about money. Right. Okay. We're uh, on to the last question here. Okay. So you talked about the NASDAQ. I think the NASDAQ had an all-time high today, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where do you, I, I, I'm not going to ask you if you're at the high of the, of the market or, you know, cause a lot of people like to call the tops, which is dumb. You know, we don't know that. We just, you know, the first move is always fundamental. The last move could be emotional, but that emotional part, we don't know how long it's going to last. But in your opinion, what warning signs we should look for? You know, where do investors that have been in this market, for example, for the last five years, if they were lucky, they got in, you know, 2009, 2010. What are you looking for in terms of warning signs to say, you know what, this is, 
Because if you get the early warning signs early enough, even though the trend will continue, and you can top it, you say, you know what, I don't care anymore. And then, you know, you go to cash or whatever the case is. What are your, what are you looking for in terms of early warning signs? Uh, well, we've had too many. So luckily I'm not, uh, you know, I think, I think it's competition, right? Like right now, to me, why would I own a regular stock if I can open an open source or a, or a platform stock or a middleware stock like Twilio? Like that's the competition. So there's competition to me is like, I don't care what Exxon's trading at. I'd rather relatively own a software stock. I'll buy like the worst software stock before I buy. So we're already seeing those type of warning signs when guys like me are, are, don't even want to look at an old economy stock. Uh, so I'm part of the, my, their own warning. I think, listen, cash at 2.7% is good competition. I'm pretty comfortable with having 30, 40% of my money in cash all the time when I can earn 3% risk-free. Uh, and I don't have to worry about travel and what stocks are doing. So I think we're seeing a lot of competition for stocks. At the same time, the valuations are high or unknown, meaning like we don't know how to value these things. So, so kind of, I think stocks are already on borrowed time, but they have been for, you know, two, three years, but I'm bullish because uh, everybody's still worried about the same things that I just mentioned to you. So because information is so freely available and there's so many smart people, you know, worried and, and talking about it. Um, I think we're seeing these type of like booms and busts in different markets and not so much, uh, uh, overall, um, there's so much, there's so many places to invest and, and, and network and do things that the warning signs are not the same anymore. Just like I said, it's hard to value companies. It's hard to like figure out one true warning sign. Um, so I don't know what the trigger will be. It won't be something that you and I are talking about today and it won't be something that it won't be Trump and it won't be something that uh, everybody's talking about every day. It'll come out of the blue. So I just, I think people have to decide what their allocations to the stocks are. For me, it's somewhere between 30 and 60% of my investable money. It's never above 60 and it's never below 30. So it's not that big a range. So I try not to worry about it that much. Um, uh, just like you, I lived through the NASDAQ meltdown the mortgage-backed securities, and now we're in a bull market again. I'm always asking myself, where's the next asset bubble that could, have, could, it, could affect the market? The meltdown that got me, I wasn't even in real estate, and I still got killed in real estate. So and in the end, you're going to get, when the tidal wave hits, it, it affects something that you never thought it was going to affect anyways, right? So you just have to understand, you have to have some predefined rules and not get caught up in the euphoria. I mean, I don't care how good this market is. I'm not going to have 60, more than 60% of my money in stocks. Um, and I'm going to stick with that rule. And no matter how bad the market gets, like in December, I, I couldn't sell anymore because I was down to 30% stocks. So it helped me stay in the market, you know? So having those predefined Rules meaning, okay, I'm down to 30% in equities in December. If the market falls another 20%, I'm down another 6% on my money. It's not going to make or break my, my life. And so living, understanding the math of those things really helps you. You know, it's, it's, it's having more bigger rules around, you know, fear and greed that'll prevent you from doing stupid 
you know, micro things around fear and greed. That's because you have a good risk management. You've been doing this for a long time. Oh, I have, a good, I have, a, I have a, I'm very optimistic, which I'm wired luckily. And the second thing is I'm scared because I'm Canadian. So I'm scared of everything. So I'm never going to be more than percent. I'm scared America could come and take Canada tomorrow. So I'm always scared. I'm looking over my shoulder. I, I always think about, you know, because I, every time I went through those things, and that's, an, of course, you know, in hindsight, I'm thinking to myself, there's always something, what you said is that what's going to bring down the stock market down is something we're not going to talk about today. And I was thinking, what is that something that nobody talks about today? I think, you know what I think it is? I think it's the student loans. I think, I think today there's a bubble. I mean, it's, a, it's just every single student that I talk to, it's just the, oh, it's the trillions of dollars of debt. And they're the next consumers. But that you doesn't know? affect me. That, I, I'm, hmm. Again, I'm sure I'm not insulated from it. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't know how I'm connected to it, but I sure, you know, I've got my kids through college. Uh, they don't have school debt. Um, I never visit a campus in my life again. Uh, I think Udemy and all these other places are slowly replacing them already in the background. So yeah, they have their own problems that they brought on themselves and I'm trying to distance myself as far as I can from the educational system. And that's why homeschooling, you know, Fred Wilson talks about, it's a big trend. Um, so the trend's kind of taking care of itself. Uh, if you are a professor at one of these institutions, you are now at risk. But if you're me or you, and you know, but I don't think it'll be that because we're actually talking about it. It's been, I don't know, we've been talking about the student debt crisis for four or five years. So when it happens, it'll happen. I think what's more important about it when and if it happens is who are the derivative, how big is the fallout beyond what we thought it was going to be? And that's generally what we can't predict, right. how people will behave. But it won't be good. People won't behave well. Uh, we'll be affected more than we think. And if you have a good social network and if you have good money management skills, you'll be fine. Agreed. Agreed. Howard, I wanted to thank you for your time. Um, continue to write whatever you write in that email. I know it takes time and dedication to write. It's wonderful things. Um, I love that you give a lot of credit to your friends in the industry. Your emails are not me, 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 you know, it's like, it's more of credit to the people who surround you, which is such a nice thing. I try to do the same thing, you know, I try to give, I always say my success in life is because of the people who surround me and really the good heart of other people that always helps us. So I want to thank you for your time. I hope this is not the last time that we did uh, an interview. Um, would, would love to have you again um, in, that's it. Wishing you a really good weekend, good Friday, and uh, we'll be in touch. All right. Enjoy. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. All the best. Have a good weekend. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Optimist Futures podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, all under the username Optimist Futures. If you have any questions, feel free to send us an email to support at optimistfutures.com or give us a call directly at 561-367-8686 or toll free at 1-800-771-6748. Once again, thank you for listening to the Optimist Futures podcast.
Please remember that this matter should be viewed as a solicitation to trade. Trading futures and options involves substantial risk of loss and is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. Optimus Futures LLC is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, methodologies, newsletter, or similar service. We urge you to conduct your own due diligence.